This episode is brought to you by Thorn, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements... The tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the products do what they say they're going to do on the label. And then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s, where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 5.11 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 5.11tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, 
you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 614 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Matt Dawson. Now, Matt was on a promising road to professional football when injury stopped him in his tracks. He then found himself transitioning into the world of finance, in which he flourished for many years before grief took him to another crossroads. Following an impromptu journey to Nepal, Matt had another form of awakening that took him to the creation of Dawson's Peak. So we discuss a host of topics from his journey into the world of finance, the pursuit of happiness, the tragedy that he turned into strength, exploration, Project 7 for Soldiers, and so much more. Before we get to this incredibly powerful conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library for you, planet Earth. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Matt Dawson. Enjoy. Well, Dawson, I want to start by saying thank you so much for carving out some time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast today. I mean, I appreciate you having me. Just, uh, you know, I've, I've uh, had a chance to listen to a number of them in the past and I just have, have really enjoyed it. And with the, the people that you've had on, I'm just, I'm just uh, you know, very honored to that uh, let me come on and speak with you. Brilliant. Now, am I right in remembering our conversation you talked about knowing Bedros Koulian? Yeah, well, I tell you, I don't know Bedros well. Is is uh, he's a, a friend of a friend, and uh, he and I have had the, the opportunity to connect once or twice. But just uh, you know, really great guy. He's doing some interesting stuff, and uh, and he's he's definitely an inspiration for a lot of people. Yeah, well, it's interesting because you said about knowing him. Obviously, you both come from a very successful financial uh, path, but one of his big you know breakthroughs was was kind of like yours. Was was a sense of purpose and kind of realizing some of the childhood trauma that he himself endured and how that was manifesting later in life. So it was interesting that you said that you kind of, you know, had this, even if it's from a distance, this relationship with him as well. You know, it was interesting is it, it's been some time since, since uh, he and I've had a chance to connect, but uh, before we connected the first time, you know, so I, I kind of went through and, and, and got a better understanding of his past and everything. And it was surprising, man, is we really had uh, all these points of overlap in our history and our approach and kind of things that happened to us and, and how we transitioned through them. There, there were probably five or six things. And as soon as I talked to him, I just, I felt like I'd known him for, you know, for 10 years, you know, after five minutes. So I, I think a lot of people feel that way with him. Yeah, no, absolutely. I got to do an interview face-to-face in his studio and I'm actually very honored because they were telling me they were really scaling down on the interviews, like him being interviewed. They've got their own podcast now. Um, so yeah, to, to hear that story face-to-face was, was incredible. Yeah, no, and obviously, and he, he presents it well. I mean, he's just, uh, 
he's an interesting guy with a great story, great purpose. And so I'm glad you got you know, a chance to, to participate like that. No, absolutely. So very first thing, where on planet Earth are we finding you today? Because I know you find yourself all elements of the globe. Yeah, you know, it's it's I'm uh, I'm back in Los Angeles now. Just got back from the uh, the row across the Atlantic. You know, that was and I'm sure we'll you know we'll get into that. But um, you know, got back uh, just a few days ago, and as soon as I got back, is it was uh, popped out to Las Vegas uh, for a big event for Monster Energy, who's uh, who's a fantastic sponsor of ours. So to go from the uh, you know being basically alone for for 53 days on the road to uh, being in Las Vegas speaking in front of 1,300 people uh, was was quite a transition. But now I'm back in LA now and uh, back to training full time. Well, I know that being quiet is a pivotal part of your story, and obviously I want to get to that when we hit it chronologically. But just as as a side note, again you had that element when you were crossing the Atlantic on your own rowing, and then you're thrown into probably the most sensory overload city we have in America. So what was that like for you? I'd say it was, um, it, it's certainly a challenge, and it, but it, it's something, you know, as we progress through Project Sun for Soldiers, it's something that I've become more accustomed to. For example, the, uh, the Everest expedition was two months to go from that and to come back. And, you know, and when I come back is I'm coming back into, into Los Angeles and more specifically West Hollywood, which is, you have a lot of people, everything, a lot of energy run around. Uh, but, you know, even on my, my everyday training is I spend a lot of time, I, 99%, 95% of my time I spend alone, you know, training out in the mountains and, and, you know, living up in Lone Pine, uh, California for, for about a year. So it's just, I've kind of, I've kind of gotten more and more used to it. But uh, it's certainly something that that is a challenge because, you know, when you're alone in the mountains or you're out on the boat, you know, then you come back and you have all this stuff going on around you. It really is sensory overload, you know, like you mentioned. And I have to I have to fight to kind of calm down, calm my mind down, because sometimes I just I'm kind of like a skittish cat. You know, when I come back, I just see this. I just I see a lot of movement. I hear a lot of noise. And it's like I just want to put my back to a wall stay protected and keep my head on a swivel. But, uh, you, you know, you kind of get used to it again. Uh, but it, a lot of it, you know, comes down to also what we talk about with strength, strength and surrender, where you don't try to control situations. You just try to open up. And uh, I've noticed that the more I can open up and breathe and be vulnerable, both, you know, mentally and, and, and physically, things like that, it just it helps with this type of stuff rather than trying to, you know, trying to close up and protect yourself, which I think is the natural inclination a lot of times. I don't think the average person realizes how much stimulation we endure in modern society as well. Because I mean, yeah. I've, one of the things I do, and this is this is almost a, a poor example because it's on a very commercial thing. But um, I like going on a cruise. But we always get the the balcony room, and I spend a lot of my time just sitting on that balcony watching yeah. the ocean go by. But when I had one of my guests say, you know, we have the the third world problems, as people say, which are absolutely real, you know, hierarchy of needs, significant problems. But the first world problems are, are real as well. Now, you know, so, you know, whether it's your cell phone not working, you do all your business electronically or, you know, whatever it is. And you look at, sorry, my dog's been a pain in the ass in the back. Um, you look at just, again, the overstimulation that we get, it is... I find that when I when I'm sitting on my porch meditating, 
I'm at peace and I've got, you know, there's usually my dogs uh, not being assholes. Um, so they're being quiet and, you know, I've got the, the wind and the palm trees and it's it's easy to, to get still and get quiet then. The trick is then when you go into the real world, when you've got all this white noise and all this chaos around you to find that same mindfulness amongst that. And I'm sure, again, that contrast from the Atlantic to Las Vegas must have been probably one of the, the, the challenging ones. Now, listen, you, you hit it on the head and it's it's something that I noticed, you know, in the past is <clears throat> when you, you know, when you wake up, you know, normally most people turn on the television, hit the cell phone, you know, whatever it is. And then until you go to sleep and, and a lot of people fall asleep, you know, with the television on is that we are inundating ourselves literally every waking second with something. And it's just, I think it's, it's just something that, that it's, it's bad habit. It's a bad habit that a lot of us get into. And I've, I'm certainly guilty of it a lot of times. And I noticed what, what really has helped me was first thing in the morning before I do anything after I wake up is I go into a meditation. And it sounds like it's, it's something kind of similar to what you do is just, I get, you know, just completely quiet, completely still. And it maybe lasts for five minutes or maybe it's a half an hour. It's, you know, kind of whatever, you know, however I feel and what my time allows that day. And I haven't, I've found there's no better way for me to start the day and really set my proper mindset, my proper intentions, and just to get still. And that's one of the, the, the biggest things that, that I've found, whether it's, it's that type of, of meditation or when I train, probably 95% of my training uh, is I do with no music or no stimulation of any type. And 100% of my daily training I've done completely alone as I've never had a training partner. And and so the, the lack of, of music or outside stimulation for the majority of the time and no training partner allows me or it, two, it does two things. One, it allows me to get more quiet and still uh, and to go deeper in that state once I can get it. You really kind of get into start getting into flow state and all that kind of stuff. But also it forces me to kind of get quiet and still because I don't I'm, I'm removing that outside stimulus. And what I can really feel a lot of times is. There's, there's always a little bit of noise in my head. I think a lot of people experience that. Once you try to remove it, uh, for me, it gets louder. It gets just louder, more forceful, because I think it's, it's kind of like a little bit of fear, a little bit of anxiety to where I, it doesn't want to release. It, don't wanna let, it doesn't want to let me go. But once I'm able to, to push myself through that, I can always feel when I, when I finally start to get quiet and start to calm down and start to get peaceful. And it just it takes everything that I do to the next level, whether it's physical performance, mental emotional. And that's something that I really strive for on a daily basis, both, you know, in, in my personal endeavors, but also in training. It's something I've noticed driving. So I consume a lot of, of music when I, when I drive, but also it's a great place to listen to podcasts. And of course, if I've got to research someone's coming on, then I love to, you know, to listen to one. However, when my mind is chaos, I reach to turn the stereo on. When my mind is at peace, I reach to turn the stereo off. So once right. I'm done with what I have to listen to, I actually choose to have no music now, which is very interesting for me. Yeah. Now, look, I'm, I'm with you. And it's just, you know, so much of these things are just are just habits that we form. And, you know, whether it's listen to music or, or the podcast or whatever. And it's just I'm always kind of looking in my life to see, you know, habits that, that, I'm, that I'm forming or just things that, that I'm noticing that I'm doing without thinking. And the more I find that I kind of try to remove things out, the, the more peaceful that it becomes. So it's removing, instead of trying to do, you know, 200 things in a day, 
is is kind of dial that dial that back a little bit and remove some of the music, remove some of the podcasts, and then where it's a little more Spartan. But I, I find the more I can do that, typically the better the results are, and the more I'm able to just to calm down and to breathe. And that that's just a, a huge thing because a lot of times we don't realize that we start just getting more and more kind of closed up and pin up, and just to, to actually open up, open our chest, open our hearts, open our breath. It just it, it makes a tremendous difference for me personally. Now, do you find that when you're at peace, when you're in that flow state, you actually get more work done by removing some of that that element? Yeah, I think that that's typically what I experience. You know, because look, a, a lot of people, you know, especially when you're trying to 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 do bigger things or bigger projects or, or whatever, we try to pack our days with more and more things. And there's a difference between being busy and being productive. And there's a difference between getting something done and getting something done well. And what I've noticed is, is, you know, with banking for years and years, I'd work 80 to 100 hours a week. There were times when I'd go in, I'd pull all-nighters. And, hell, there was a time I worked for 72 straight hours. I came home once in that time to take a shower. And, I mean, and I I was up for 72 hours straight working. But but it's, it's, there's a... You know, I notice when I, when I do things like that is I, even though I get a lot of stuff done, I'm not typically happy with what I get done. I'm not getting, I'm not as efficient as possible. So I've noticed is something that, that's a, a big, a big importance to me is to be as efficient as possible, you know? And, and so that, that's really what I focus on now is maybe I'm doing fewer things, but I'm doing them at a much higher level. And I'm much more efficient in, in producing, you know, greater output, greater, greater quality output than just trying to do, you know, overload my day with things. Brilliant. Well, we've obviously, you know, skated over a few things that are way down the timeline. So I would love to start at the very beginning then. So tell me where you were born and then tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Yeah. So I'm originally from Alabama and uh, I've, got, uh, I've got one older sister. And uh, so my family was pretty interesting is uh, for 40 something years, they were uh, for sales reps for the largest playground equipment manufacturer in the country. So I grew, I grew up getting a, you know, getting to test playground equipment, which is not a terrible thing for a kid, but also they built like uh, uh, city parks and amphitheaters and pavilions and, and things like that. So it was all, you know, bigger, you know, commercial stuff or working with, with parks and municipalities. So it was, it's uh it was a great childhood growing up in Alabama, a lot of, a lot of wonderful people. And uh, something that, that I always got to see with my parents is that they were just extremely hard workers. It's, uh, you know, probably the, the two biggest things I got from them. One is just their work ethic. And secondly, they're very creative in a sense of understanding and, and you know, how to, how to think, how to problem solve, how to look at situations and to potentially come at it from a different angle is they're, they're always kind of, you know, looking at things in different ways than I thought than a lot of other people were. And uh, I just, I really admired that about them. And they were always there for my sister and I growing up, you know, no matter what we needed, whether it was going out, throwing the football and practicing or, or you know, advice or whatever. So it was just, it was a, a great family to grow up in. And it was, you know, very appreciative of that. Now with that, they have a very unusual lens. You hear this whole, you know, kids today, um, participation trophy I mean all these things but there's definitely we have witnessed that I think sadly with lawsuits and you know some kind of uh, over aggression on the health and safety side that a lot of our play equipment 
has basically been dumbed down over the years. Um, what have they seen or have you heard them discuss about that, the kind of genesis or regression of playground equipment? Yeah, I, think, <laughs> uh, I love that question. And uh, I've, I've never gotten the question about playground equipment, so I love, I love talking about it. Uh, you know, it's, it has been interesting is that it's just the, the liability has just gone through the roof. It just skyrocketed. And, you know, like I said, there's a lot of their stuff is with states and, and local municipalities, things like that, where things are put out to bid. And it's just the regulations have just gone through the absolute roof. And it's, you know, especially if you're dealing with ADA, American Disabilities you know, Act and things like that. I mean, if you're off an inch here or there, it's just, I mean, you can go in there and scrap a $300,000 piece of playground equipment. It's just, it's, it's crazy. Then also just, I think the, the way that kids play and the way that kids are allowed to play has, has changed tremendously. I know since, you know, you and I are both kids. Uh, and then also it has changed the uh, kind of the, the scope and design of playground equipment in, in some ways as well, where instead of having like these, you know, big, tall, high decks and high things, you know, stuff like that, it's a lot of times what you're seeing are people going with lower things uh, where, where it's just you're taking some of the, the potential liability out of the situation. Uh, and also, uh, you know, requirements for safety surfacing, which has gotten, you know, a lot, a lot more in the, in the, in the recent years where before, well, probably what you and I remember is, you know, you'd have just dirt, you know, heart like concrete under this stuff. And now you need 18 inches of, of different, you know, different types of, uh, of surfacing or like rubber surfacing or mulch or things like that. So it's, there's no question that it's definitely, you know, come into the industry and has started, uh, caused a number of changes over the years. I think some of them are, are probably good for a little bit, you know, increased safety. And some of them are just probably overkill, like most things, the, you know, these days. Because it's interesting, I had a guy on Doug Orchard, and he made a documentary called The Motivation Factor. And it's bizarre because I don't, I had, I know hardly no one that's actually heard, uh, excuse me, watched the film before. It was one of the strength and conditioning guys I had on the show that recommended it. But it's this uh, PE program in the 1950s. Phenomenal. When you look at the footage, the 50s and 60s, um, they basically have a tier system of PE. So you start off as I think it was white shorts. And then, and as a group, you raise each other up to try and get fitter and fitter and stronger and stronger. And the seniors that you see in this video, I mean, you would think it was like Navy SEAL selection. It was insane. But a lot of the equipment they use were the parallel bars, were the monkey bars. And I was thinking, I mean, I've been trying to kind of put some of that back into my training now, some elements of it. But we don't have that equipment anymore because the health and safety element is the same as the high diving boards. You know, or you, you can't have those anymore in pools and you can't have monkey bars. So it's taken away some of the ability for our children to develop the very things that will keep them fit and strong by, you know, the, the pendulum swinging so far the other way. Of course, none of us want our children to get hurt or killed in a playground. But, you know, there, there's an element of fear that keeps you hanging on to the bars too, you know. So it's... Uh, it's now a challenge to find any of the equipment that they would have used back then for their strength and conditioning. Yeah, no, you know, a hundred percent. And, uh, you know, I think it's, it's not only on, on the physical side, like you're saying, but also kind of on, on the mental side in the sense that, you know, when I was a kid and you hear, you hear, I mean, I feel old saying this now, but it's, you know, even, even as young as, you know, second grade, third grade is we'd leave the house in the mornings and we were told, 
if I see you again before dark, you know, you're in trouble. Like, just get out of here. I don't care where you go. What you, and like, we would have these events, like we would be miles and miles away from the house. Um, and I, and I have, even though I don't have any children, I have, you know, most of my friends, you know, have kids these days and hell now you let your kid out in the front yard and you're not standing 10 feet away from them. They call child protective services and you get a case written up on you. And I think it's, it's, it's really starting to do a disservice to these kids where, you know, obviously you want to, you want to keep them safe and protect them, but you have to give them a sense of, of, of freedom and being independent and be able to make decisions for themselves. And I think there is uh, too much coddling that's, that's going on these days. But I think the, the difficulty is you mentioned really is figuring out kind of where the, the balance is, you know, maybe we were too far in one direction in the past, but we certainly, in my opinion, have gone way too far in the other direction, you know, here currently. So I think it's it's kind of bringing things back more in the middle of getting back to, you know, the monkey bars and, and more of these, you know, kind of rudimentary things where, yeah, maybe there's a higher chance of them getting hurt uh, or letting the kids run around and play and get out of the yard and, and be able to make some decisions for themselves because, you know, nothing's free. And everything that we're doing these days, you know, it's going to have repercussions, you know, down the line. And I just, I think we're just becoming a lot softer, you know, than we need to be in a lot of ways. And it's kind of coddling the mind where you're creating these kids that are growing up just kind of dependent on something else or someone else to, to kind of give them the oversight rather than having the, the freedom, and the ability to make some uh, you know, more decisions that they're capable of. Yeah, well, the pendulum swing in one way. There was just a Netflix documentary on um, a guy that I watched growing up. His name is Jimmy Savile in England. And he had a show called Jim Will Fix It. And you'd write in and say, hey, Jim, you know, I've always wanted to train with the SAS or I've always wanted to be a princess in the ballet, whatever. And he would make these kids' dreams come true. National treasure, you know, loved by all, was on all the, you know, was, was seemingly doing a lot of work for charity um, for the good reason. Well, he dies and then behind the scenes, there's this kind of growing allegation of, of um, him being a predator, boy, young boys and girls. Um, and then ultimately, yeah, it all blew up. But so here you have a guy who was patroning um, like a special needs, um, no, sorry, like a, like a psych prison. There was one for, uh, you know, wheelchair bound people. There was a girl's school. And what he was doing was gaining all their trust and then going in and abusing these, these patients, yeah. these, these girls. So there is a real threat, and you know, obviously that's the problem. One thing that I really feel is, is a solution. Where I live now, um, they built a community. So you have basically four subdivisions around this communal space. The communal space has a soccer pitch and tennis courts and basketball courts, and there's a clubhouse with a pool. And then there's a path going all the way around, a separate path away from the roads where you can, I mean, I'm talking about two, but, you know, at a certain age, you can start, you know, lengthening the leash on your kids and gaining trust. Right. And they are in a very safe place. And, and, and the community feels like a community. We feel like neighbors. And therefore, that whole takes a village thing, you start watching each other's kids as well. But I think that's the problem when you start boxing everyone off in these last two years is... I think done so much damage for the element of community. You don't have that. And then every single person is worried for, you know, about their little castle and they can't let them off their grounds. I think if we put that community element back in, we'll also then be able to start sowing that trust again like they used to be. Now, look, I, I think you said it, it very well. Is that, you know, I think a lot of people kind of view themselves or view the world as, as we're all kind of living in a, 
you know, like a, like a big, uh, I don't know, like a single unit, you know, or single building apartment complex where we all have our own little rooms and we're all walled off and, and the, whatever we're doing is not impacting or influencing anybody else. And the way that I look at it is there's kind of a universal consciousness where it's kind of like a swimming pool is that we're all in this, we're all mixing everything that we do together. So because that it, it's so important to be working together and not to be walled off. And it's, you know, look, I think that's, that's, it sounds like a, a tremendous community that you're having a chance to be a part of, you know, and also it's just, it, it, we got to get people to understand that literally everything that we do, and I mean, everything that we do in some way, shape or form is going to eventually impact everybody else is that we're all in this together. And I think in this day and age, as we start to, we start to lose that with, you know, with a lot of things like social media, where we're, we're saying, you know, we're getting online to get connected, but then we're sitting in our houses alone to be connected to others. You know, we're getting disconnected to get connected. It's, and, I, and I think that unfortunately, you know, that and just, you know, rising concerns with, with some of the, the craziness that, that's come along the past couple of years, you know, we are getting more and more reclusive. You know, unfortunately, and, uh, you know, the communities like what you're talking about, there are any ways that, that any types of things that are going to bring people more together and to, to understand the, how important it is to work together on things. I think it's a it's something that, that's much needed right now. I agree 100 percent. Well, that being said, when you were young, what were you doing as far as athletics and sports at your school age? Yeah, it really, I mean, it was just it was anything and everything you know, I could get my hands on. It's uh my my uh, dad was was a was an athlete was a um, was actually a major league baseball prospect. Uh, the the uh, Pittsburgh Pirates wanted to sign him straight out of high school, but he he was uh, I think seventeen, and his mom didn't want to sign the contract and wanted him to go to college. Thought that, thought that was a better route for him. But uh, so with that, then my uh, my mom was was a good athlete as well. My my sister played high school volleyball, so really we were all kind of you know active in that sense. And, uh, you know, anything and everything I want to do, my dad was always there with me to go out and practice, you know, whatever. I mean, he, I can't tell you how many balls of batting practice, you know, he threw me uh, through middle school and high school, then being out and I'm throwing passes to him, you know, on the football field or, you know, putting footballs. He was just, he was always there for me. But, you know, my biggest passion really in, in high school was, was football, baseball, football, number one, baseball, number two, a lot of that just coming from the South where obviously football, you know, is, is, uh, is king down there. They got a chance to run a little bit of track, but really just anything to be out and to be active and to really to, to, to push myself mentally and physically is what I wanted to do. So, you know, being from uh, uh, from Alabama, there's a lot of stuff to do like out in the woods. So we would go spelunking, which is, you know, caving all the time and, you know, be repelling or, or swimming in the rivers or, you know, anything to just be outdoors active, you know, pushing ourselves mentally and physically is, is really what we were into. Now, what were you dreaming of becoming at high school age? <laughs> yeah. You know, that's, that's a good question. It's in, in terms of, say, a, a, a profession, it's I don't really think any, any one thing stuck out in my mind in high school. It's, it, I, it's hard to describe, and, and I don't know if, if – Many people understand it. Really, what, what I wanted to be, it's when, when I was in high school, is I remember being in, in, say, in locker rooms and see the coaches come in. And the coaches would all be in a room together. And these are kind of, you know, they're, they're older guys. Now they're starting to break down because they've got wear and tear on the body and, and things like that. And they've got stories to tell. And honestly, all I wanted to do, I wanted to earn my way 
into that room with those men that had been through so many things and really pushed themselves to their, to, to their physical and mental limits. And that really, that's what I wanted to do. And I didn't know whether that was going to, that was going to be me being, you know, in the military or playing football or, or doing whatever, but it's just, I wanted to become a man that was capable of pushing himself to, to some type of limit or past some type of limit and earn the respect of other men in that position and therefore earn my way at, to have a seat at that table. And really that's what I wanted to do. And I know this, that's not an answer directly to the question of, you know, as, as a professional, what I wanted to do, it's just, I wanted to find something that was going to enable me to, to get outside of myself, to push my, mes- my mental and physical limits and really to earn my way into that room. So I know down the, the road, you know, you, you have some, um, some epiphanies and, and some emotional kind of uh, peaks in your life. Many, many times in these 600 episodes that I've got so far, um, when people have had some things that are manifested later in life, a lot of them can be traced back to you know early life trauma. So it sounds like you had a good relationship with your father and a good a good you know upbringing. When you look back, are there any elements of your early life that you would consider uh, contributed to some of the emotional elements later? Yeah, it's it's uh, the I think the the biggest times that I can see is is you know they talk about a lot of times it's things that happen to you and I forget the age now but it's something like under four or five or six or something like that that can be so formative and uh, my first years at several years at school maybe up to I think it was up to third grade when we were living in Tuscaloosa it's uh, I was I was going to a uh, to a Catholic school and I mean I was in trouble every single day. I mean, I was just always being told that what I was doing was wrong, that I was wrong. I was always in the principal's office and I was getting sent home all the time. And, um, and it got to a point where uh, this, this lady, I remember for two years, this lady would come in like, I don't know, two or three times a week. She'd pull me out of class and take me to, to this room and we'd play with sticker sets. It was like Scooby-Doo and the A-Team and talk about my feelings. And at this age, I thought it was because I was like such a good student and I, this was like a reward that I was getting to go out of class. I'm like, oh, man, I get to go play with stickers and talk about this. You know, I get some cookies and everything's great. And it didn't hit me because you talk about how things, you know, kind of manifest themselves later. It's I was in college. I was maybe 19, 20 years old in a in a uh, in a class uh we're talking about is international finance and, and we're talking about De Beers marketing of diamonds and the diamond trade, things like that. And literally I'm taking notes on, on how De Beers, you know, artificial inflates the diamond market. And all of a sudden something just came to me and it said, she was a therapist just out of, I mean, out of nowhere. And I just sat there for a second. I was like, are you kidding me right now? I was like, she was a therapist. I walked out of that class. I called my mom. She answered the phone. And I was like, that was a psychiatrist I was talking to or a therapist I was talking to. She's like, what are you talking about? I was like, in second grade, when I got pulled out of class three days a week, I was talking to a therapist. And she's like, how in the world do you remember this? And it's just, it's just, it just goes to show you that is that, you know, we think that we're 90% conscious and 10% subconscious. And I'm telling you, we're probably 95% subconscious and 5% conscious that this thing was rolling around in my head for all these years. 
and finally chose to resurface itself. But it's a long way of me saying is that in those formative years when I was that young is I was I, I could never sit still. I mean, I was just so active, had so much energy. I know if I was a kid these days, I'd be on no telling how many drugs and I probably would be in some type of special education program because I literally just couldn't concentrate and couldn't sit still. Uh, but, but at the same time, didn't find anything that I was doing either interesting or challenging. And to kind of have that with a, with a stronger personality is there's no telling, you know, like I said, what kind of drugs I'd be on right now. But that, that was certainly something that I had to overcome later in life is that, you know, when you're that age and for years and years, you're told that everything you're doing is wrong and that you need to sit still and shut up and do what you're told. Uh, that that's something that, that I really struggled with, you know, later in life in my twenties and thirties is having those, um, I think the the confidence to say, you know, I'm not wrong, that what I'm doing is not wrong, that I can trust, you know, my emotions. And that, that was, that was a, certainly a tremendous challenge that, that I face and I still face to this day. So was it a fact of the, once, once the energy was channeled through sports, would did that become your outlet that allowed focus and release? <clears throat> you know, I think it did to a degree, but to be honest with you, it's just that I've got a lot of energy is that even, even with the, the focus through sports and all that, it was still something that, that I just, I struggled with for, for years and years and years on a daily basis was properly focusing, uh, you know, the, the energies, but also the, the, the fear and the anxiety that I developed at an early age, because when you're, when you're a kid and even though people care about you, they're always telling you that you're wrong. And that whatever you're doing is wrong or whatever you that you're going to find some way of screwing something up. It's uh, it, it creates a lot of fear and anxiety. And it, it's hard to, to, to understand that in, in the first regard. Then secondly, how to how to deal with that and it, it, channel it through sports or through activity is even though it's helpful, it's really not the, the most effective way I've found to deal with that. And really, the most effective way that I've found is what we talked about earlier is about finding ways to get quiet and, uh, and, and to listen to yourself and be able to understand yourself and process these things because there's a difference between channeling it and processing it. You know, and, and really what I found lately is the, the more that I can process it, uh, the more effective that I can be, the better person that I can be not only for myself, but for others. Yeah, I can kind of relate a little bit of my junior school. Um, it, it's, a, it's a hard thing to describe. I, I grew up, my dad was a vet. And so we had this big house, big farmhouse. And from the outside looking in, they're like, oh, you know, they, they must be quite well off. And my dad had a, you know, a, a profession where it was well paid. He was terrible with money. I definitely inherited some of that. And I'm kind of unlearning that even at 48. Um, but the school we went to, you know, bless them, they put us in this private school with all the best intentions. But it was run, I mean, there's no other way to describe it, by this cruel couple that should never be allowed to have a school for children. Um, and we were viewed as the poor kids because compared to a lot of these people at the school, we were because, um, you know, we didn't have a lot of money. And so then we were like viewed as the poor kids in the school. We were viewed as the rich kids in town, you know, so we were kind of stuck between a rock and a yeah. hard place. But because we, we you know, were, were the, the lower quartile of, you know, f of financial background in the school, we were definitely preyed upon. And it's funny because all my brothers and sisters sometimes will get together and we'll, you know, have some wine and talk about it and the stories come out. And yeah, I mean, they they preyed upon us. So it's funny because I think some of my anxiety comes from that as well. When you're always 
treat it as a kind of black sheep in a school for years and years and years, that, that definitely leaves an imprint. I tell you, it does. And especially, you know, it just, it's that young in age. It's just, you get these things, in, and I think you had the perfect word for it, imprinted on your mind, and you get, you know, programmed for it. And then you deal, you know, you spend the next 20 you know, or two to three decades trying to unravel it all, you know, because it, it all, it, one of the biggest things that, I, that I've learned is that we, we all think that, that everything that we do is kind of compartmentalized. And I can keep one thing separate from another. And it's just something that I, that I tell people more and more and more is that the, all this stuff works together is that, you know, we're all kind of, you know, swimming pools in an ocean or however you want to say it, meaning that you, you have one little drop in one area is in, in, in enough time, it's going to infuse everything else. So uh, us as individuals, literally everything that we do, you know, impacts everything else that we do. And everything that we do impacts everyone else around us. I mean, all this stuff works together. So, I mean, I completely understand where you're coming from on that. So, you talked about playing football. I know that you got to a very high level. So, walk me through your football journey, you know, how it ended, and then ultimately how you found yourself in the finance world. Yeah, so, uh, so I, uh, you know, obviously played in, in Alabama and uh, was – you know, did all the, the natural kind of accolades in high school from, you know, like, you know, Allstate and, and you know, uh, you know, Players of the Year and All-Star Games and stuff like that. And then uh, had a chance to uh, to continue that at the U.S. Naval Academy where I, was a, where I was a quarterback. So in high school, I was a quarterback, strong safety and punter. And then uh, got a chance to play quarterback at the Naval Academy. Uh, unfortunately, heading into our season is I broke my left wrist. And I played the first season with a, my left wrist and a cast. And when you're trying to run the triple option with a cast on your wrist, uh, it's not the easiest thing in the world to do. So um, during my time there, even though I, I really enjoyed the academy, it was a very difficult experience. I enjoyed it. I just I didn't think it was going to be the right fit for me. I just I wanted some more freedom in my life to pursue some different options. Uh, so then I transferred to uh, the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, where uh, where I was transferred to uh, strong strong safety, and I uh, got back on a defensive side of the ball. Played there for uh, only a year because between Navy and Wharton is I had to have uh, surgery on both my lower legs, where I had really bad exercise induced compartmental syndrome, where I'd walk up two or three steps, and I mean it was just excruciating pain. I'd get real bad drop foot where my foot would drop because the nerves were impacted so badly I couldn't pick my foot up. And it took probably three years after that surgery until I finally got my speed and explosiveness back. So by that point, I'd, I'd left school. I was living in Dallas, training in, in uh, Valley Ranch, Las Colinas, which is where the Cowboys used to train there. And, uh, and really just started, you know, just training uh, on my own with a lot of guys in that area. A lot of guys would come there in the offseason. We would train together. And then with that, and then just started going to a bunch of workouts or, or you know, uh, yeah, like uh, open tryouts and, and, you know, private works and stuff like that. And then uh, finally kind of caught on with, with a few teams here and there, was on waivers with different teams. I was invited to camp with uh, the Carolina Panthers, but uh, blew out my hamstring just before camp started. So that got, you know, kind of put on hiatus. And then was with uh, waivers with teams in the uh, Arena Football League. And then finally, when it got to the point where I had a couple of contract offers, uh, I was, I forget now, I think 23, 24. And by that point, I just kind of gotten burned out on it. 
it's I mean, it'd been such a, a huge part of my life for so many years. And I knew that I had I had the skills to, to play with the guys. I trained these guys on a daily basis, but I was never going to be, you know, a, a name that anybody would know. I was just going to get my head kicked in, you know, for the hell of it. And uh, honestly, it's, you know, being around a lot of these guys where, you know, football was, was uh, you know, all they had. And that that's really kind of what they define them is I was just, I was tired of being around it. And uh, the locker room is not the most conducive place to be around people that are, are trying to do bigger things with their lives. And uh, I was just, I was tired of being around, you know, people that I didn't feel were helping me get to another level, you know, personally. So with that, it's, I thought it was, it was time to kind of finish that journey of my life. And then coming out of, uh, of Wharton, which is a big finance school, it's a feeder school to either to normally to M&A or to trading. Uh, you know, I, I, I knew that I wanted to get involved in M&A. So really it's either New York or LA. So, you know, once I finished up football, I came to LA and, and got involved in banking. So just backtracking for a second, this is a topic that comes up over and over and over again, and it's very pertinent to the first responder professions too. A lot of our men and women in our uh, careers get hurt, you know, and, and there's there's a multitude of elements from what we do, from the lack of sleep, all these things. But when I look at youth athletes and I have these high-level coaches and strength conditioning and nutritionists and, you know, PTs and all these different experts, there's it's a, it's a very different lens than where I came from. So in England, you play football. You know, there's some people, I'm talking about soccer, there's some people that play at a very high level, end up making millions and, and good for them. But it's the kind of philosophy in the school age where you're still playing for fun. You're not, there's, there's not like huge weight room sessions and all this kind of thing. And yet when I moved to the US, what I started hearing, and I always use this phrase jokingly, but you know, it's like the Uncle Rico's. You'd have these people that were now mid-20s, hugely deconditioned, and then telling me about, you know, they could have been the next NBA, you know, whatever it was, star, but if it wasn't for their ACL tear or their slap tear or, you know, all this stuff. And when you take a step back and you look at how many young men and women we destroy in the high school collegiate and professional leagues of games who then are discarded and then left with their injuries and you know that that's that's their thing then it kind of makes me question the the where that line is between wellness and performance and especially right. when it's in the high school level should you know there's areas where you know you've got a, a guy who'd be a great linebacker you don't want him to lose weight but from a wellness standpoint, you should be doing everything you can to get him to lose weight. You know what I mean? So it's a, it's a real kind of um, double-edged sword. Of course, everyone wants to watch the best on television. But where do you draw, that, draw the line where you're destroying someone's life? And as you were talking about, you know, someone in their late teens, early 20s shouldn't be having surgery from, you know, a game that they love that's supposed to be right. just that, a game. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting. Uh, I think that's a, that's a great topic. And that's something that I've seen <clears throat> develop certainly over the last 20 years, where it's just the, uh, you know, what these kids are going through these days. It's I know with with my training, you know, back back then is that surgery, I think was my third surgery that the leg surgery was the third one that I'd had, where I had my first shoulder surgery, uh, when I was, I think 17, because I just almost destroyed my rotator cuff from baseball and, and football and always being out there, you know, my, my personal mentality was, and this, this was, you know, pre-internet, you know, this, uh, this is, you know, I'm, date, I'm dating myself here, but all this stuff that I was doing was before the internet came out. So the way that you would understand 
and learn how people trained was I'd read a Sports Illustrated and I would I'd, I'd look at Carl Lewis's you know track program getting ready for whatever. And if I'm like if I see well he he ran ten two hundreds uh, and he took you know two minutes in between I'll do twenty two hundreds and I'll take a minute in between. It's just I, I I would find whatever I could get my hands on and I would either double it or I'd cut the time or I'd whatever. And my my approach was always more. It's just I can do more. I can take it. I can you know it's just just give me more. And so with that is I mean it led to a lot of you know, injuries and overuse and overtraining and, and surgeries, even at a young age. But some of that, I think there maybe have, would have been even a small addiction component to it, where it's like, I had to prove to myself that I could do it, that I had to, and it, I think that came back to what we were talking about earlier about, uh, you know, proving that I was worthy of different things and whether it was, you know, receiving love or, or whatever it was. It's so, I mean, so my approach to training was almost fanatic. Uh, and, and it's just, it's just, the, and it, it's something that, that I still, you know, kind of a challenge that I face. Anyway, it's a long way of me saying that, you know, the kids these days is they, they do face the, these challenges, you know, with the training. I, there was a, a, a doc I saw recently uh, is either on Norway or Sweden and about how they train their athletes, especially in the winter sports where, and uh, I forget the name of this thing, but it was, it was very interesting basically until kind of like later in school is they're, they're not keeping score on things. They're not tracking progress or performance, whatever. It's all about learning skills and having fun. You know, it's like no one cares if your Pop Warner football team won how many games you won. It's, it's completely irrelevant. It's about teaching the kids skills and work ethic and, you know, teamwork and, and dedication and sacrifice, things like that. And honestly, you know, at this age, looking back on it, I think that's the most important things that these kids need to learn it's, it's a matter of, you know, work ethic, of applying yourself, about being a, de- a good teammate, about, you know, sacrifice and, and dedication, about understanding it's not all about you, about the role that you can play, and just developing skills. You know, and I, I think that's the, the, the biggest focus right now and not just going out there and just kicking the crap out of these kids and, you know, and putting her 40. T- I mean, who gives a crap what an eight, eighth grader's 40 time is? I mean, it's, it's, it's just, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's ludicrous, you know, the stuff we're trying to do, but hell you've got kids these days. I see 18 or eighth graders getting recruited by Nike, you know, signing contracts and these different things. I mean, it's, it's a huge business and that's what people have to understand is there's the personal component and the business component. And I think these days it's just, it's getting, you know, just conflated too often and into uh, too large a degree. Yeah, no, I, I agree completely. And with that kind of playground analogy, you know, of, of course, there's, you know, an element of of extreme, um, you know, challenge and the fear element. We talked about the old school play playground, but if we don't create those safety elements, then we are going to let these people kind of create this this farm of broken dreams and and uh, i just had dan john on he was talking about you know the elite athletes that he works and i think that's mainly in the football space and you know he's like these are kids that have no choice they're, they're trying to get out of a very bad you know upbringing that they've got and so they're gonna leave everything so then you've got that too that that you know that burning desire to to get out of the situation you're in and really quote unquote make something of yourself you are going to do anything and i think the sad 
reality that I'm realizing now, whether it's football, whether it's, you know, MMA or, you know, so many other different sports is they're realizing less is more, whether it's contact to the head, whether it's, you know, strength and conditioning, like the, we need to do far less tra- tra- training than we realize to have the exact, if not better performance. But we've been overtraining ourselves and our children for, for years and years and years. So, yeah, again, you don't want this pendulum swinging the other way where everyone's wrapped in pillows on the football field. But at the same time, to get your children to enjoy playing and play a multitude of sports. That's a, that's a resounding theme. Multi-athlete um, excuse me, multi-sport athletes are more physically and mentally durable and they end up having a, a successful career. The kids that do travel ball and just pitch and pitch and pitch and pitch and pitch are the ones, as you said, 15 years old having shoulder surgery, which is, yeah. you know, when you think about it, really is almost child abuse. Yeah. <laughs> no, look, I, I think you, you said it well. There's a, there's a huge difference between what you can do and what you should do. You know, it's like you can go out there and train whatever, 30 hours a week, but should you do that? You know, and, and especially at different points in our lives, you know, you know we have to approach it differently because how I train at, at, in my early 40s now, you know, I can't train like I did in my early 20s. You know, it's, it's just totally different. But, uh, but that being said, it's physically, I, I would completely agree with you about we don't need to train, I think, as, as hard or as often as people typically do. And I think it's very important to get a multitude of different types of, of stimuli, you know, activities. But that being said, something that, that I think is critically important that comes with a lot of training and a lot of hard training is the mental element of it. Because, yeah, maybe you can go out there and train for 15 hours and, and get a, a level of result. But if you train for 25 hours, it just it takes a different a different approach mentally. And when you're just when you're absolutely, you know, just just dog tired and you're still going out there for another you know couple hours, it, it, it creates I think it's, it's more likely to create a mental fortitude. So I think there's, there's a balancing act there, or there, there's a line between maximizing and optimizing physical performance and development and development of skill sets and things like that. But also in that mental element, I think it's very important for kids to understand, uh, you know, you know, how to push through these barriers uh, from a mental element, because, you know, all this stuff is, is once you develop the physical skill set, it goes from being, you know, 90% physical and 10% mental to 90% mental and 10% physical. And I tell you, I was around so many athletes that is, is as much as I like to think that I was a good athlete and, and I certainly was to his regard where these guys were just, I mean, just different beasts. It's like we shared, didn't have the same genetics, you know, just, I mean, from, from like just a human to human standpoint, but these guys were just weak mentally. And I knew that, Anybody, uh, and I felt that anybody that I went up against, that you might be a better athlete than I am, but nobody's going to outwork me and nobody's going to break me. And if you want to just, you know, run into each other as long as you want to and see who breaks first, it ain't going to be me. I can tell you that right now. Uh, but that came from that mental development of all the training. So I think there, there's, a, you know, kind of a, a happy medium in there somewhere. Absolutely. Well, I think that's what I've seen. Like, take the fire service, for example. You know, we, we have to train in our gear, and it is horrendous, especially if you – I worked in California and Florida. So you're out in the, you know, 100-degree-plus weather in gear. It doesn't let you kind of offload any any heat whatsoever. And it's important that you do it, and I think that's it. You have your times where, you know, you're, you're literally in the, the pain cave, you know, the red line workouts, and then you have – 
the movement, the, the active recovery workouts. And if you undulate that, I think that's the that's the the middle ground. If you constantly yes. crush, you're going to yeah. break them down. But again, if you make it easy every day, as you said, mentally they're not going to find that that dark dark place that they have to find their way out of. No, look, a hundred percent. And and I look, I, I I it's still something that I struggle with is in preparing for our current project, uh, Project Seven for Soldiers is because of, of COVID and we got a year delayed, is I had to train for, I think it was 30 months from, uh, you know, starting in August, 2018. And during that time, I had two surgeries from overtraining. I had two surgical procedures and it's still something that, that I struggle with because I was training on average about 20 hours a week, 21 hours a week, and just, you know, just beating myself into the dirt because I was so scared of leaving things on the table that I figured I'd, I would just overtrain rather than other uh, than undertrain. And, uh, and it finally, you know, kind of, I got it through my head is in most, in most regards, it's better to be 20% undertrained than 2% overtrained, you know, and it's just not only in your ability to perform, but your ability to enjoy things, you know, cause if you're not, if you're not enjoying it to a certain degree, you're not going to perform and maximize your capabilities like you would if you're able to, to sit back, be a little more, uh, you know, recover a little bit more fresh. And you know, I think typically you can perform in a much better, uh, to a much better degree uh, a lot of times in that, you know, that way. Absolutely. Well, back to the financial path then. So, you know, the, the, the football um, chapter finally closed. Um, you found yourself in that profession. So, you know, walk me through that. What was that like when you first walked through the door? And then, you know, tell me about your kind of success in the following years. Yeah, it was, you know, it's when you get into to investment banking, it's, it's an extremely competitive field. In the U.S., you know, normally it's, it's New York and L.A. New, I mean, New York's the center of the universe for it. But to L.A., it's, it's a very competitive space. <clears throat> and, you know, you'd come in the first, the first couple of years as you work 80 to 100 hours a week. And it's just that's, that's what you do. Uh, and it's, you know, suit and ties. It's, it's very corporate. And it's, it's just a, an aggressive, competitive space. And that's something that I enjoyed. And it was common for people to, you know, pull all-nighters, you know, things like that. And it's just, uh, so when I came in, I really kind of applied that, that mentality that I brought in from sports and that, you know, knowing that, that I had the capacity to work hard and I, and I had the, the want to work hard. Uh, so for the first, I think, uh, two years, you know, I was worked as an analyst at uh, the largest boutique bank here on the West Coast. We specialized in middle market M&A, so our clients would be valued anywhere from about $50 million to $300 million. So not real big, but not real small, just kind of, you know, in the middle market, kind of that sweet spot. And then, uh, you know, just, just progress my way up through it from, you know, from associate to, to vice president, senior vice president, and, uh, you know, finally to managing director. It's, uh, it's, it's interesting. It's, it's, there's a lot of correspondence it corresponds a lot to kind of what you see in, in these athletics where in the beginning when you're an analyst is you just had your head down and you're just grinding is you're pulling all the hours and you're just trying to learn as much as you possibly can. Uh, and it, that's kind of regard or getting that back to what we're talking about is that's kind of the, 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 the physical skill set development. And then as you kind of progress your way through that, it's, you know, it's more about, about thinking and about bringing deals in, about managing deals on a day-to-day basis. So you transition from that to the physical skill set to, you know, to the mental skill set. And so it's a perfect correlation what we're talking about, you know, in sports. 
And, uh, you know, finally, as after about uh, 15 years, something like that is when I stepped away from it, is uh, there's a bank here in L.A., uh, William and Henry Associates, that I'm still involved with. And I, I still try to be active with them because a, a good friend of mine uh, owns it and runs it. Uh, but it's just it was a, for me, it was the it was the right industry to be in at the right time. Uh, and, and uh, you know, certainly learned a lot. And, and really what I learned is it was, I can take and apply that so much now with running Dawson's Peak and, and Project 7 for Soldiers. Is it just, I think it really kind of set us up for some success here in, in my approach and mentality, the way that, that I approach, you know, the nonprofit space, which is probably a little bit different than, than most people do. So for the first 10 years, I'm sure, you know, in that particular industry, you, you found yourself with, you know, the, the nicer homes, the nicer cars, the, the, the material elements. Let's say about 10 years in, were you feeling fulfilled? Was, was, it, was it helping? <clears throat> you know, no, it, it, I don't know. It's, it's, I guess it, it's relative. It's, and, and the reason I'm hesitating is that for as long as I can remember, you know, I never felt fulfilled. And like, even, even with the banking, it's, uh, I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the, I enjoyed learning. I enjoyed the challenge of it. I enjoyed working 80 plus hours a week to, to prove that I, that I was capable, you know, of doing it and performing at, at a, at a high level. But other than that, outside of that, I never really found it, you know, fulfilling is that I just, I knew that, that there was something missing, either, either something missing inside of me or something not programmed right, or, or there was something, I was just, I, I felt a sense of like I was lost. And it's something that I felt honestly from probably, you know, maybe the fifth grade, you know, something like that. And even though throughout my life is, is I was able to accomplish different things and move in, in the areas I generally wanted to move in, there was always this sense of inside of me that something was missing or I wasn't doing something right or I wasn't, I wasn't connecting the dots in the right way. And <clears throat> I can tell you, man, when you have that feeling, I don't care if, if you're you know, doing something, making $20,000 a year, or you're making $20 million a year, you know, and I've been around people on, on both sides of that. It's that it's, it doesn't, it doesn't help is that you got it. You got to figure out a way to, 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 to push through that or to get around it and understand it. Because, you know, if you can buy, you can buy the house, you can buy the cars, you can take the trips, all that. But when you have that sense of emptiness or that, that you're kind of longing for something, uh, the materiality is just—it's not going to get you where you want to go. It may feel good for the first, you know, few minutes, but it, it's certainly not going to get you there. Well, it, it parallels um, Danny Boy O'Connor we had on, who was one of the founding members of House of Pain, the the hip hop mm -hmm. group. Oh yeah, and they were at a pinnacle. Everyone knows Jump Around, so there was yeah. the, they had their absolute heyday with it at the top, and he had the cars, the mansion, the girls, you know, the drugs, everything that you know he he wanted in his life. And again, he talks about that. It never filled the void. And I think that what you're talking about in your profession parallels one of the, I think probably the, the least uh, acknowledged element of mental ill health in my profession. So a lot of our men and women are already working at the bare minimum 56 hour weeks. And we're talking about being awake every third day. And then you have the mandatories where you told you next day you can't go home. So now you're talking about 70 plus hour weeks. But there's a lot of people that will volunteer for more overtime. And I don't think that people realize that one unhealthy way of coping with mental trauma is to be busy. 
Right. And so yeah. it's not about the money or the overtime, really. It's about the distraction of when you have to be at work, you have things lined up, you've got to do A, B, C, and D, and you don't have to think about whether it's childhood trauma, whether it's the god-awful call you saw, you know, three years ago. But I'm sure that parallels probably, you know, the, the medical field, the business field, and so many others where you have the ability to lose yourself in a work week. Look, I think you said that. You said that so well. It's, it's, it's funny. It's, I, so I've got a, uh, a very good friend. This guy's you know, basically a brother of mine. He's uh, out on the Chandler, uh, Chandler fire team in Arizona. And I was just with, with him a few days ago. Uh, so he and I, you know, talk about this kind of stuff, but uh, you hear that all the time of, you know, just keeping yourself busy. So especially like if you're going through a bad breakup or, you know, you, you lose a job and a little bit different when you lose a job because you need to find work. But it's 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 always, you know, get out there and like just keep yourself busy. And and what I found is is really the answer lies in the exact opposite. It's like when you're when you're facing these things, you know, what we want to do, like just like you said, is fill our lives. And we were talking about this earlier, is you want to fill our we want to fill our lives with more and more things, thinking that this sense of of production or productivity uh, you know, is what's going to guide us there. And really it's you need to start taking things out and, and get more and more quiet and just settle down. And what I, what I have found is, is that's what's worked for me first for a long time. It's, it was always put more stuff in, but now the more I can take out and the more quiet I can get, the more still I can get, the more things, the more stimuli I can remove out of my life on a daily basis. It's just, I found that I'm more productive. I'm, I'm more fulfilled. I'm better not only for myself, you know, but for others. And it's, but it's typically the opposite is what we're told. And it also it's, look, there's a big business around it. No one's making money. If you go out in the woods for half an hour and sit by yourself and journal or meditate or whatever, there's not, there's not an economy that's built around that, you know, but there's an economy built around keeping you busy and keeping you active. Absolutely. Well, obviously you found yourself on, on a, on a real self-exploration journey. Um, it sounds like at a, not a, not a, um, a singular event, but a compounding element was loss. I know one was actual, you know, loss on the side of grief. And it sounds like the other one was loss more of uh, someone not being around you anymore. Right. So I'm just going to open the door for, for where you would want to go as far as discussing that element. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, the, you know, the, the person that passed away was, was my mom and anybody that, you know, when you're, when you're a kid and you, you, hell, even if you're 40 years old, you know, you're still a kid in their eyes and, and in that relationship, you know, when you lose a parent, man, it's, it's tough to describe. And it, it's just, until you've been through it, you know, you really don't, you don't get it. And uh, I just, I really admired my mom. She was just, she was just a, a tremendous woman, you know, hard worker. And just, uh, I think I, I just, I learned so much from her and just, and just really admired her. Um, and that just kind of helped put in perspective that, I felt like I was treading water for so long and I was justifying a way of treading water that it just, it just kind of, you know, just showed me again, just kind of how precious life is and you just, you really can't waste time. And then with, with uh, the person I was dating at that point is, is I thought that that was probably who I was going to end up with. It was uh, you know, I'd experienced something with her and, and a level of love and understanding and connection that I'd never experienced before. And that's something that I really struggled with in my early life. And, you know, found it with her. And so then to lose that and my mom so close together, uh, it, it was really, 
you know, kind of a breaking point for me where it just, I, I knew that I, that I'd been lost and struggling for some time and to just really get hit with those two back to back that just, I had to, it just, I literally, it was, it was one of those times where I had to make a change. It's just, I was like, there, I just, I, I, I can't go on like this. So either I'm going to take myself out or I'm going to make a change. And I mean, I went to the point where I was, I was actually, you know, contemplating, you know, taking myself out, but it's just that I was like, you're, I'm not going to find a better time. You know, now, now's the way to do it. I don't know how in the hell I'm going to do it, but I got to start. I got to dedicate myself to, to making a change. So after, you know, grieving, cause I, I, I grieved my divorce too. And it wasn't even so much the woman. It was the impact that my divorce had on my child that really was, was the grieving side. So my, my wife now, she lost her boyfriend before me um, to suicide. So we both came into the relationship grieving, but in a different way. But it yeah. was the same, same grief. So many people have a turning point. Not many takes them to Tibet. Um, so that's a pretty amazing place to have a, a, an awakening. So talk to me about how you found yourself there. Yeah, so it, it, this is actually a, a longer story. So I'll, I'll kind of, you know, I'll, uh, you know, shorten it down a little bit. But uh, yeah, so after, shortly after uh, my ex and I broke up, I think it was about maybe two weeks later, is uh, I just jumped on a plane to uh, Nepal and I traveled there alone. Obviously, I'd never been there before and spent three weeks hiking around the Mount Everest region. Uh, a couple of days into the trip, I was invited to join a Buddhist service in the uh, uh, monastery in Tangboche which is the largest monastery in that area. And uh, for anyone who's never been there, it's, it's, you're in, in the middle of the Himalayas. There's, you're there, there's no roads anywhere. You're walking everywhere. And um, for about an hour is I sat in a room with, uh, with a handful of chanting monks. And all I wanted to do was just to focus on being present. Just try to be as, as still as possible. Don't try to, uh, you know, to analyze anything, but just to experience it. And man, when they were started chanting after a while, these, these waves of energy were hitting me and I'd never felt anything like that before or since. I mean, it, it got to a point where I was even looking at the mat I was sitting on to see if they had plugged it into the wall, you know, and this is how they get their, their kind of kicks is they you know, bring guys in and put on like an electrical mat or something. Like it was, it was that in that level of intensity when I say this energy and uh, after the service, uh, I was, I sat down in the middle of the village. I was looking at Mount Everest, watching the sunrise behind it, probably seven in the morning. And I absolutely just lost it and just started bawling uncontrollably like a baby. You know, and I'm, I'm in my late thirties, I'm 240 pounds at this time. And I'm just in the dirt and there's spit and snot everywhere. And it's, <laughs> this is not a scene that you want to be a part of. And, uh, you know, we talk again earlier about about that subconscious is just something inside of me told me, listen, don't try to understand this. Don't try to rationalize it. Don't try to explain it. Just experience it because whatever it is you need to experience. And uh, after after maybe 10, 15 minutes, I go inside a tea house where I was staying and I try to eat breakfast and I absolutely lose it again and just ball for maybe 15 minutes. I mean, just literally uncontrollably. And as soon as that was done, I'll never forget it. It's I looked up into the back right corner of this room I was sitting in and uh, something spoke to me. And when I heard it, I didn't hear it with my ears. I heard it with my heart. You know, I heard it with every fiber and cell that I had, with every essence of everything that, that either I was or possibly could be. And it said two things. It said, you're not living with a sense of purpose and your life is only about you. And you can say, you know, I don't know whatever it is to you, whether it's the universe, 
a collective unconscious, some type of energy, God, whatever. But whatever this thing is, it, it's 100% real. And it spoke to me. Uh, and I, I knew at that point, my life would, would never be the same. I knew that I was a, that I was a new person or a different person in a different direction. Um, but it's, it's difficult, you know, because, you know, what do you do with it? You think that you, you have this epiphany, but how do you apply it to your life? Because, you know, you know, the next day you get up in the morning, like, what the hell do I do? And, you know, want, I knew that my purpose was in trying to help others to identify and live their purpose. Because I know what it is to be alone in that pain and confusion and frustration. I was in that place for three decades. And that, that's difficult and it sucks. Um, you know, but to be a purpose finder helper, you know, that, that job doesn't exist. So literally, it took two years of continuing to work and, and to climb as I was able to around the world to, to figure out, well, maybe there's a way I can start an organization where we can sponsor athletes and, and put on these large global expeditions where people can watch our athletes and draw parallels between themselves and, and you know, what they're seeing. Because obviously, we don't expect everyone to go out and climb Mount Everest or, or to row the Atlantic Ocean. But we all have a mountain or an ocean in our lives, something that, that we've either been putting off because we're scared of it, we feel that it's bigger than we are, something that intimidates us, you know, whatever it is, that if we truly apply ourselves, that we can face it, we can overcome it, we can conquer it, whatever it is. And that's ultimately, you know, how Dawson's Peak came about, is just wanting to help inspire people to understand that we all have a, a greater sense of purpose that we can be living, not only for ourselves, you know, but for others. But it, it was it was a long, challenging road to go from, you know, the breakdown to, to that point of starting the organization. When did you first find yourself climbing? Was that prior to that the was loss? In, that, no, that, no, man. So uh, before I went to Everest is I had zero climbing experience. And the funny thing is, even on that trip, you know, all that all I did was go to base camp and then walk around that area. It's when I was doing that, I thought I was Indiana Jones. I mean, I thought I was pushing <laughs> the envelope. I was like, I'm in, you know, I'm in base camp, dude. Like it doesn't get bigger than this. And then when I, when they turned us around at base camp, I'm looking and I see people actually going up the mountain. Then all of a sudden I was like, I feel like I'm in the parking lot, you know, with the minivans and the real climbers are going up this mountain. Uh, so really I wouldn't even consider that a climb. We did climb, uh, uh, you know, some mountains in that area, like, you know, Kalapatar and Gakio Re and, and the Gakio lakes area. And they, they were maybe 20,000 foot climbs, you know, something like that. Uh, and that, that was really the, the first experience of climbing that I'd ever done. And then after that, the natural progression, which a lot of people who get in big mountains kind of take is that I went to Kilimanjaro, uh, you know, which is obviously in Africa, and then uh, Aconcagua in South America, which is the highest peak outside of the Himalayas, and then finally to Mount Elbrus in Russia, which is the highest peak in Europe. So I just started making this, this kind of slow transition. And uh, dude, at that time, yeah, I was still 240 something pounds, 242 pounds, still lifting, you know, big heavy weights. I didn't have a clue what I was doing. You know, when I, when I look at the, the equipment that I took on these first couple of climbs, it was just an absolute joke. I mean, I had, not only did I have the wrong shirt, I had 12 of them, you know, and I had the wrong pair of pants. I had six of those, you know, it just, you know, versus, you know, what I have now, it was just, I didn't have a clue what I was doing. But it's all part of that, you know, that learning process. Now, before we get to the actual Dawson Speak itself, I know when we spoke the other day, you mentioned about climbing with Nimsdai. Uh, I had him on the show a while ago. Phenomenal human being. So tell me about that. 
Yeah, no, he, he's an interesting cat, man. He's, he's certainly uh, an individual. So uh, this past, this past year, uh, he and I had a chance to meet for the first time in uh, Antarctica. So we spent a month together uh, in Antarctica. And then funny enough is that we both flew directly to Aconcagua uh, from Antarctica. So we were on the same flight from Punta Arenas into Mendoza, Argentina. And then uh, I beat him in the base camp. I got the, I got the first helicopter in the base camp. So that's probably the only time in my life I can say that I, that I beat him on, you know, near a mountain. But uh, so we both flew in uh, to base camp on helicopters together, summited on the same day within hours of each other, then, then flew out together. So uh, I tell you, he's he's a uh, he's a tough guy. You know, he's got a, a an interesting background with his his time in, in the British, you know, special forces and the Gurkhas and you know things such as that. But I tell you, he, he's uh, you know he's good to be around um, in a sense that he's I think he's you know facing a lot of a lot of challenges right now because. You know, his mission of, of, of bringing attention more to the Sherpas and different climbers, things like that, I think it's a, a wonderful cause. And obviously, with my experience in Everest, I know a lot of those guys, and I think that they certainly deserve more, uh, you know, more um, attention than, than what they receive. But at the same time, I think as, as uh, even though Nims is an extremely accomplished climber, now he's facing a new challenge, you know, because he had 14 peaks came out which I haven't had a chance to see yet, but I, but I hear a lot of great things about it. And now it's kind of, he's transitioning from that climbing to, you know, maybe building the organization. And I think there's going to be a, a big challenge for him. Uh, but I, but there's, no mon- there's no doubt in my mind that he'll certainly accomplish that because he's, he's, he, he's a great guy. He's, he's a very hard worker. And I think he's going to be you know, successful in anything that he does. Absolutely. No, he's an amazing human being. And I want to get him back on again at some point, but 14 Peaks, absolutely worth watching. Incredible. Yeah. yeah. Um, so talk to me about, um, uh, make sure I get the name right now. Let me write that down. So talk to me about Dawson's Peak and then Seven for Soldiers, because I know, you know, first you've got the organization, but this incredible event that you are, what, two thirds of the way through now is, yeah. you know, again, absolutely mind blowing. Well, so Dawson's Peak, you know, our, our mission is to inspire the discovery and pursuit of individual purpose. So it's a fully recognized 501c3 that got started in 2000, late 2018. And uh, like I said, it really came from that the epiphany that I had in, in Nepal and wanting to put together an organization where we could just help to inspire people to understand that we all have a, a true purpose in our lives and that our lives are about more than us. Because every single thing that we do is going to impact everyone else you know, around us in some way, shape or form. And I think that that's that's lost on a lot of people because a lot of people believe that, you know, what you do behind closed doors or no one knows about it or whatever. You can just kind of keep that walled off. And I'm telling you, it's not how it works. It's literally every single thing we do, public or private, good or bad, is going to impact everyone else at some point. So because of that, we owe it to ourselves to maximize ourselves and our lives, uh, but more importantly, you know, because the applicability to others and the impact that we're going to have on others. And that that's really, you know, why we created Dawson's Peak and Project 7 for Soldiers is our inaugural project. And really it just, it, and I get the question a lot, you know, how do we put it together? Because it's such a big project, you know, and we've got the Explorers Grand Slam, trekking across the Mojave Desert, uh, rowing across the Atlantic Ocean, and flying a plane around the world. And it's, it's, it really, it, it, it kind of came together slowly where 
uh, I remember when I heard for the first time when, when Richard Parks, a number of years ago, was the first person to complete the Explorers Grand, Grand Slam in a single year. And I was in, I remember exactly where I was sitting. We're getting our permits to climb in Aconcagua. And I called bullshit on it. I'm like, there's no way. I was like, it's not possible for someone to do all this stuff in one year. And then finally, a couple of years later, to be in a position where I could physically and mentally accomplish that um, was a special thing. But I'm like, well, that's probably going to take, you know, six, seven months. And I'm like, what else can I possibly do? Because I've got more capacity here. And uh, and a guy that I'd met on that climb in Aconcagua had rode across the Atlantic Ocean a number of years before that. So I'm like, well, that may only take a month or two. So let's put that on there. And then I'm like, well, now I don't know. Maybe there's, you know, I've got some more time. What else can I do? And it just it, that, that's kind of how the project got built out. And finally, when it was said and done, it was kind of this behemoth where I'm like, well, that could be interesting. And if we can get it all, it'll be you know, somewhere around seven new records. Uh, but I just I thought it could be a, a great thing. Uh, just try to get more people related to it, because not everybody's going to care about mountains. Not everybody's going to care about an ocean. Not everybody's going to care about a desert. But if we can do more things, maybe we can get more people interested and involved in it and impact a, a larger swath of people is, is kind of you know how it came about. So I had a guy who's a Royal Marine who was an amputee as well. He lost a leg and Lee Spencer, he rode across the Atlantic. That was his you know singular event. Um, and, you know, when he talks about the journey and I think he got food poisoning at one point, and it was just awful. Like some of the stuff he went through, um, mm-hmm. you know, that in itself is an incredible feat of endurance. When you think of a football athlete, especially someone who then spent over a decade working finance, that's not who you think of as an endurance athlete or a climber. Okay. So so what did that preparation look like to prepare for all these different endurance events when you came from a very kind of acute power event before that? I tell you what, that that might be the best way version of that question I've ever heard and how you just phrased that. That's why you know that. Is I tell you that was a tremendous challenge. Is I mean I was all strength and power and explosiveness growing up. I mean my my idea of long distance was anything over two hundred meters. That's that's long distance. And then to to go that you know and to be involved in finance for it was actually closer to fifteen years at that point because I was in my late thirties. You know I started in my early twenties in finance, and uh, I was two hundred forty two pounds when I started training this stuff. And I and I mean, it, I just, I was still just lifting big, heavy weights, you know, cause I, I enjoy, that's what I enjoy. And at that point, hell, I couldn't have run, you know, to the, to the mailbox. I mean, it was not a good look. Um, and to go from that to an endurance athlete where I was starting to train, you know, 20, 21 hours a week, you know, I lost 42 pounds. I went from 242 to 200 pounds. Uh, it was a, a tremendous challenge. Uh, and, and really it was just kind of that change in mentality where you go from that strength and power and explosiveness where something may last for three seconds or, or a minute to something where I go out and I train for, for three hours or four hours or six hours, whatever it is, is I had to develop kind of that the same level of intensity, but a different variety of it. It had to be much more slow burn intensity. Uh, and that, w- that was a, just a, a, a big challenge. Uh, but something that I feel has really helped benefit me in other ways, whether it's how I run the organization or how I can just you know apply it to, to different fields in my life now. But uh, that, w- that certainly was a tremendous challenge. But it's something I mentioned earlier is that I still face that, that issue of overtraining, is that uh, the coaches that I had in the beginning, 
it's, uh, you know, we stopped working together. And I think that was, that was one of the reasons is I was getting hurt all the time from overtraining. Cause if they wanted me to go out and train for four hours, I was going to beat the crap out of myself for four hours and just see how hard I could push myself. And it led to, like I said, to multiple surgeries and surgical procedures over a couple of years. Uh, and it finally got through my head where it's, it's better to be, you know, I said this a little bit earlier, 20% undertrained than 5% overtrained. And, but it's just, it's, it's just, it's a scary thing for me not to, not to go out there and kill myself. Uh, but it's, it's certainly something that, that I've had to, uh, a mindset I've had to change and develop over the years. There's a British stand-up comedian who's actually a transvestite as well. Not that that really factors in any way, shape, or form, but um, his name's Eddie Izzard. I know, yeah, I know. Okay, yeah. so yeah. And he is not known for, you know, a passion for fitness that I'm aware of, um, but for comic relief, I think he did 30 marathons in 30 days. His last yeah. time in COVID, he yeah. did it on a treadmill, which I think, you know, that's like times 10. I mean, kudos to him. But obviously there's, and I've heard him talking about it, and there wasn't a lot of physical preparation. And I want to get him on the show one day. I think it'd be amazing to, to listen to his story. But obviously that's, that's, as you said, a lot more mindset than it is actual physical ability. So you had, again, these, these acute moments in a game of football and, you know, and chopped up into to quarters where you got to rest for a moment. And now you've got these long, slow burn events where you've got a lot of time to think about how much pain you're in. What yeah. what was the mindset piece for you shifting from the acute sport to the the distance event? I think it was. It, I think the biggest challenge was just learning to control and refocus the intensity. Is that just? Yeah, I mean, look, I'm just just by nature, I'm a little bit kind of keyed up, uh, and I don't care about a lot of things. The things I do care about, it's I, I, I'm, I'm passionate about them. Um, and it's kind of like, you know, when I started training, like I'm in the mountains, is that I'm looking for something to hit, you know, with that football mentality. I'm looking for something to attack. And it's just, you, you, you've got to, you have to learn that. You just have to refocus that and kind of shift it around to where you can carry the same level of intensity, but you just carry it in a different way. And I think that was, that was the, you know, the biggest challenge. But um, i trying to think. Yeah, I, th I think that was that was it. It's it's I didn't I didn't here's here's what it, I didn't want to water myself down. I didn't want to become less intense and just by my nature. It's just not something that 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 I, I think that I can do. But just understanding that there's different levels of intensity. And when I had a chance to be around some climbers and diff different endurance athletes, where a lot of people think they're kind of laid back because they're going to go out and run for, you know, whatever, 100 miles is these are extremely intense people a lot of times but they just, they're approaching it in a different manner. And its intensity now has to last for, you know, maybe even two months. And kind of learning that was, was I, I didn't understand that intensity could be, you know, uh, I guess, you know, uh, constructed in that manner. Beautiful. Well, the people that brought us together, the person that brought us together was Eric Katzenberg. Um, mm -hmm. I sought out 5'11 a long time ago. I wore their uniforms as a firefighter and then started wearing other stuff and their backpacks and their shoes. Um, and so shout from the rooftops about them. I hunted them down like a dog to become a sponsor on this podcast because I wanted to bring them to everyone else. And I know that, that you brought them in as a sponsor for your event as well. So tell me about your relationship and, uh, with the products and with the company themselves. Yeah, so, uh, so actually I'd met the, uh, the president, Francisco Morales. I'd met him years, years before through uh, uh, some, basically through a banking relationship. 
where they they were you know we helped them with a, with a couple things uh, in the you know in the financial realm. But uh, so when we put the project together, Francisco was just you know naturally a great person to reach out to because you know he's, he was uh, he took some time off with Five Eleven, but we'd come back with him. And, uh, you know, so I had a chance to go down there and meet with him, meet with Deb and meet with uh, Eric Katzenberg, who you mentioned. And just I'm telling you is that this, you know, and you know this when you're when you're looking for spar- for sponsors or partners is you talk to some people. And even though you see a tremendous fit, it's like talking to a wall and it's just it's like they don't get it. There's no connection there. And it's just it's a lot harder than it needs to be. When I met when I went down and met with 511, I mean, in the first five minutes. I just knew that they got it. And I knew that it was a family down there as a tremendous organization. And I got to see, you know, the products and their, their dedication to, to quality products and to performance and to, you know, to first responders and to, and to the military. And it's just, it just, there was, it just, it was an instant click. And I knew as someone that I, that I wanted to, you know, to partner with. And fortunately we're able to find a way to come together and they just, they have just been an absolutely tremendous sponsor as I mentioned to you the other day, is is I would be surprised if anybody on this planet has worn 511 more than I have, you know, training in it for as much as I do. And and now that they've got even more kind of like this athletic wear is now, I mean, I wear this stuff 80% of the time. Absolutely. I love it. And just, I, I love that that we can help support such a wonderful organization that really is a family. And they they really, it's they they walk the talk is the people that they say they care about, they, they do care about them. And they, they've been there from, uh, you know, for us from, from the start and just been a, a tremendous uh, partner in the project. Absolutely. That's funny because the, the uniform side is, you know, again, incredible. And they have, you know, it's, it's a foreign concept, but they have separate uniforms for women, for example, because we are, you know, more often than not shaped differently. And it used to be when I was first a fireman that, you know, we all just shared the same shirt and the poor ladies had it tucked in and folded around <laughs> like 12 times. Um, but from, like you said, the, the off shift where, I mean, the, the, my workout shirts right now, short, shorts, excuse me, my workout shorts are 5'11", a lot of stuff I wear because I'm less concerned about whether there's a brand name on it and more concerned, can I run? Can I fight? God forbid, you know, something happens out there and you know, I'm a responder in my uniform and I'm a responder outside my uniform. So yeah. I'm not going all kind of tactical GI Joe in the everyday space, but I certainly don't want my genes to stop me from functioning as a, you know, a, a protector of my community. Uh, but I also don't want to look like <laughs> I'm off to a, you know, a black rifle convention either, you know? So yeah. they, there's that happy medium where, yeah, they have stuff for when we're in uniform but their stuff for everything else i think is incredible now i think you know, like you just said it really well you know because a lot of people construe them as as tac you know military first responder and dude 95 percent of the stuff i wore on the row was 511 gear i mean so if you're thinking like you would never in a million years consider five where 511 gear to row an ocean and the vast majority of my training in the mountains is i'm wearing 511 gear whether it's, you know, like, you know, the pants, the shirts, the socks, the boots. I mean, 95% of the time that I'm in the mountains, I'm wearing 511 gear. You know, unless we get in extreme conditions where, you know, I got to get into more specialized stuff. And just you wouldn't think that a company that that has the the pedigree that they do, you know, you could apply their their uh, products in, in such a wide variety of areas. But I have uh, and it, it it is performed perfectly, you know, every single time. And even when I went across the Mojave Desert, that was 213 miles in just under seven days. Again, that was all 5'11". 
So, I mean, I've put these things in every extreme condition you can think of, and it's, it's just, it, it performs, man. And so it's, it's just, I, I just, I, it's just another thing. It's something that I don't have to, I don't have to concern myself with because I know it's going to be there. I know it's going to perform. And it's just, it's one less thing that I have to deal with. Absolutely. Well, mentioning the uh, Seven for Soldiers again, I know there's some events left. So talk mm-hmm. to me about what's left and talk to me about some of the political challenges that have kind of put a, um, you know, a, not a damper, but, but have put a pause on some of these events. Yeah. So, uh, so where we're currently sitting is, is this year, uh, I've had a chance to summit uh, Everest, Denali, uh, Kilimanjaro, Elbrus, Aconcagua, and Vincent. Additionally, uh, skied to the, uh, to the South Pole and then uh, became the first person to trek solo unsupported across Death Valley in the Mojave Desert, which was uh, 213 miles in uh, just under seven days. And then finally just got back from a 53-day, 3,100-mile uh, row across the Atlantic Ocean. So it's been, it's been a, and all this started on May 23rd of last year. Uh, so, you know, we're still under, we're still under a year, you know, that we've been able to accomplish all this. But uh, with that being said, what's coming up next is uh, we have the North Pole, where I need to ski to the North Pole, and then climb uh, either Mount Kosciuszko in Australia or Carson's Pyramid in Indonesia, and that'll finish off the uh, the uh, Grand the Explorers Grand Slam. Unfortunately, I was actually supposed to be in the North Pole currently, but with the uh, with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the logistics provider for the North Pole is a Russian company. So it's well the the actual operations company is not, but the company that provides a lot of the manpower is a Russian company. So because of that, the North Pole season got canceled for this year. I think it's the uh, it's either the first third year or fourth year in a row that's been canceled. So now it looks like we're going to have to wait more than likely. We still have one more or two more irons in the fire where, where we might be able to get up there this year, but we're more than likely going to have to wait until April of next year to, uh, to complete that, which is, you know, I'm not happy about both personally or from an organizational standpoint, because I know that I can, I can, you know, achieve that. But, you know, some things are just outside of your control. Uh, then also we have a, a flight around the world where I'm flying a single engine plane around the world. But again, now that Russia is shut down, is that that creates a tremendous challenge for us because normally what you would do is, is you'd fly up the eastern coast of Russia, up over uh, Alaska, and then back down to the States. But now that Russia shut down, it means we have to take the Southern Pacific route, which means you're flying into the Hawaii, you know, throughout Southeast Asia to Hawaiian Islands, and then finally over to the US, when I think that leg is just over 2,000 nautical miles. So now that the airplane that you need to make that leg has got to be a bigger, stronger plane. Uh, and a lot of times you're going to have to put ex- uh, uh, fuel tanks, extra fuel tanks in the plane. So it means now we have to go out and source a new plane, source a new route. So that's going to take just a lot more time and, and money, honestly, uh, to fly a bigger plane and, and maybe put some tanks in there. Uh, so really, that that's just where it's sitting. And the last thing, which I mentioned a second ago, is that uh, whenever Carson's Pyramid, which is in Papua New Guinea, when that area opens up, then I'll, I'll pop down there and I'll get Carson's Pyramid and Kosciuszko. So hopefully by, uh, you know, by uh, April of next year is when we'll have this thing finished up. Beautiful. Well, I want to go to some closing questions, but just one more thing. You have such an international perspective. And one of the things I talk about on the show, there is an element here in the US of flag waving and chess beating and saying we're the greatest country in the world. 
and I'm all about patriotism and pride. But at the same time, if you have that philosophy without putting any work into it, before long, you realize that you're not anymore. And it shouldn't be a competition anyway. But so what I try and do is bring incredible people from other countries that have solutions to some of the things that we're suffering from, whether it's you know, the, the education system in Finland, the drug prohibition um, philosophy in Portugal, um, the Norwegian prison system. Um, there are so many countries doing things really, really well. With all this traveling that you've done, were there any things that struck you like, wow, this is an amazing idea. I wish we had this back home. I tell you, that's, that's a that's a great question, and to ask it in that manner, I don't I don't think I've I've been asked that. Um, I, I think I think to preface the question, I think you really hit the nail on the head. Is that I think even in the especially maybe even in the U.S. right now, there's a growing sense of entitlement. It's what can the country do for me? You know, what can the government do for me? Whether it's you know federal or local, rather than you know what can I do you know for my country kind of thing. And it's, it's people just, I think we've reached such a standard of living. And, uh, and I, you know, as far as I understand, you know, the currently the U S is the highest standard of living that's ever existed, you know, in human history and it's sense of entitlement that that's come along with it. And like you're saying is look, I'm, I'm the biggest patriot in the world, but to, to walk around and say, we're the best, we're the best, we're the best. When you look at a lot of metrics, they're not indicating that we are the best. Um, so it, it's, I, I think we do need to get back to work. And the way that we're analyzing and approaching, you know, a lot of different issues. Um, I'm trying to think of, of specific examples. Um, you know, the, I guess the, the one that I can, that I can think of, we kind of touched on it a little bit earlier, but, and I forget, and I'm blanking where I was. Uh, I think it was maybe Norway, but basically it's, it's the way that, that the kid, they're, they're approaching the kids development in sports and in how that, that translates into their mental development rather than, you know, putting them through the paces and, and, and keeping score and, and having these, these, you know, long practices and, and all the metrics and things like that, where it's about getting out and about being active and about being fluid and about understanding, you know, kind of why you're doing what you're doing about being a teammate, about dedicating yourself to something greater than you are. And, uh, and to, I think that that's something that that I think we can do a better job of incorporating here. And we touched on a little bit earlier to where we're so focused on the metrics these days with these kids and turn this thing into a business, you know, rather than than turning into really what sports should be for most people, where it's personal development. And I think physical is, is one thing, but, but but mental and psychological and spiritual is is a much larger component of what we take away from sports. So I think approaching that in a different light would would kind of help to reset the way that we're bringing our youth up, which is going to obviously you know reset to what we do as as we get older. Beautiful, I appreciate that perspective. So shifting to some closing questions, so I'm mindful of your time. The first one I love to ask is: there a book or are there books that you love to recommend? It can pertain to our discussion today or be completely unrelated. No, that that's a that's a uh, another great question. Really, the the ones that pop to mind is uh, the Way of the Superior Man, which is uh, David Dita. So w- let me back up. So when I went to Everest, is I took I took three books with me. Actually, I took four. It was the Way of the Superior Man, uh, the uh, the Road Less Traveled, M. Scott Peck, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, Stephen Covey. And man's search for meeting Viktor Frankl. 
And really the the two that, that I go back to most often is the way of the superior man and man's search for meaning. And something that, that, uh, that Frankel talks about in man's search for meaning, he says basically that, that we should be worthy of our suffering and that, you know, how we suffer and, and suffer has a lot of different ways that you could define that, but in how we suffer and how we face these, these times of difficulty and challenge really shows us, you know, our character and, and who we really are. And that's something that, that always goes through my mind. And also something he talks about a lot in there is just living with appreciation and finding ways to be appreciative in these moments where a lot of times, you know, we, we fail to show the appreciation that we can. Uh, and it just helps to form the proper perspective that, you know, although things can be, you know, extremely difficult and challenging is that we're all capable of so much more than we think that we are. And typically these situations uh, are not as bad as we think they are as long as we keep the, the proper perspective and the right approach to it. Absolutely. No, he's, I mean, it's a shame that we lost him, but he'd be such an incredible person to talk to. But I had, um, oh my goodness, uh, Dr. Edith Eager, who was also in Auschwitz. I think they literally were there around the same time, obviously not uh-huh. right next to each other. But so, and she became a psychologist and she, her kind of philosophy is very similar to his. And to overcome that kind of trauma, and of course it will still be there, it'll always be there, but... Um, if if these phenomenal human beings can grow from that, everyone, you know, you should never compare trauma. Trauma is trauma. But I think the hope yeah. that comes from overcoming being in Auschwitz is to me, you know, that shows you that, yeah, there there is a way mentally that you can own your trauma and then you can use it to grow from it. And that, you know... I mean, it's easier said than done sitting here in an air-conditioned office talking to you over Skype but, or Zoom. But, um, you know, the, yeah, that the, you can come back from anything. I've had child soldiers that, you know, were their parents were murdered or his parents were murdered and he was given drugs and forced to kill and, and he overcame it and became an ambassador for UNICEF. I mean, there's some of these worst-case scenario uh, stories. And, you know, yeah, I mean, we, we can use them as a benchmark. If they can come back from that... And and Edith even had like childhood trauma before Auschwitz as well. Her upbringing was very rough. Mm-hmm. There's hope for all of us. We just have to put in the work and 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 have hope. Like read these books, as you said, and understand. Look, there is a way out, and it's it's going to be painful, and it's going to suck, and it's it's going to be uncomfortable. But the person you will be when you grow from that is going to be so much stronger than the person you were before. No, like you, I think you you said it perfectly. Uh, it's just, I think it's critically important to understand but why you're doing what you're doing. And I think where the message kind of ends prematurely with most people and their understanding of why we do what we do is they think, well, I'm doing this to, you know, to develop myself. But what we have to understand is it's not about what we're doing for ourselves. And it's something that, that I've said two or three times already is that, is that everything we do is going to impact everyone else around us is that we owe it to everyone else around us to maximize you know, ourselves and to, and to be our best selves and live our best lives. You know, so we have not only the capacity to do it, but more importantly, we have the duty to do it. And I think everyone else has a duty. Like You have the duty to me to maximize yourself. I have duty to you to maximize myself. I have the duty to the homeless guy on the corner to maximize myself because I, it, my life is impacting him. His life's impacting me. And we're all is is that we all think that we're so separate. And I'm telling you, man, we're not. Is what separates me from the homeless guy under the bridge is very, very little. 
And we're all this, we're all looking for the same things. We're just going about them in different ways. We have different abilities, you know, different resources. But, uh, you know, you talked about, you know, suffering is suffering. As Frankel said it well, is that, uh, you know, suffering is, well, it's like a gas that'll fully envelop every space, you know, a full space that it's in, regardless of what it looks like, is that uh, it, what, what it's helped me to understand is that uh, a, a very popular phrase right now is to embrace the suck. You embrace the suck. You hear that people say this all the time. And I'm telling you, man, what I've come to understand is very rarely are we actually in a situation that sucks. You obviously what they face in Auschwitz, you know, in the different camps and things like that, that sucks. You know, losing a family member unexpectedly, becoming homeless, like that type of stuff sucks. But doing work, like rowing a boat across the Atlantic for 53 days, it's difficult. It's extremely uncomfortable, but it doesn't suck. You know, being in the death zone of Mount Everest with your feet frozen that are completely numb, you can't even feel them for 12 hours, is difficult. It doesn't suck. And I think it's, it's about gaining that proper perspective. Of there's a tremendous difference between something being, phys- uh, being difficult and challenging and something sucking. You know, and, and it's really about, about, about having that, that correct perspective on things. And I know it, it certainly helped me. It's something that, that I still, uh, a challenge that I still face on a daily basis, but it's, it's helped me to, to grow and develop is, to, is trying to gain that proper perspective. And reading things like, you know, Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning really puts that stuff into perspective. Yeah, I agree 100%. Thank you so much. So the same kind of question. What about a documentary and or films that you love? Ooh, um, I tell you, that's a good one. If you're talking about films, I mean, there's only one answer to that question, obviously, and that's the Blues Brothers, the original Blues Brothers, which is the greatest movie I think that's ever been produced. But um, I tell you, in, in terms of uh, in terms of docs, you know, ones that, that people are probably going to know, you know, now is, uh, you know, Meru, I think is a, a tremendous one with Jimmy Chen and, and Conrad Anchor. Were, two, were the two you know main guys in there, uh, but also you know Don Wall with Tommy Caldwell. Uh, those those are probably probably you know two of the ones that, that I really enjoyed you know recently. There's another one called uh, Losing Sight of Shore, which was a which was a female team that rode across the Pacific Ocean. They rode from the U.S. to uh, Hawaii, then Hawaii to Australia, which was just a, a tremendous tremendous feat. Um, Trying to think. Those is, is I, I watch so many docs. I mean, I watch that's uh, I, I don't watch like TV, TV. It's I enjoy watching docs, things like that. But those are three that are really kind of coming to mind right now of, of ones that, you know, that are sticking out that, that I've enjoyed more recently. Did you watch The Alpinist? Yeah, well, that's, that's another. That's, I'm glad, I knew I was forgetting one. The Alpinist is, is what I wanted to mention. So we saw that or I saw that for the first time in, uh, in uh, Antarctica this year. So I'm sitting there with talking about NIMS. NIMS was there. Like we're all sitting there watching this thing together. And I'll tell you, it's, it was so interesting because so many people down and we, and we got stuck there for an extra, I think 10 days at Union Glacier base camp because of COVID and we couldn't get out. So to be in a room and to be able to watch the Alpinists with maybe, I think we had 20, 30 people. And yet you had guys there like NIMS and actually Conrad anchor was down there the day before and he had just left. But you had Pete, you had maybe 15 people that had climbed Everest and had climbed like these like people that knew mountains. And even though that I've had a chance to do it, I don't even consider myself 
you know, in, in that, you know, in that realm of like, like these people and to, to watch them and their reaction to the Alpinist was, it, it was just, it was just a, uh, it was a very unique experience to be in, in such a group and to, and to watch that. And, and I, and really, I didn't know the story, you know, before I knew the name, but I didn't know the full story beforehand. So uh, that was, uh, I thought was a tremendous movie. Yeah, no, I didn't either. I didn't, didn't even know the name. But going back to our beginning of the conversation, to me, one of the takeaways from that is if you want to know what presence looks like, that's a great film to watch. Yeah. Yeah, no, it, it is. And it just, it goes to show you, it's, you, when you're doing the right, it's not, it's not just about doing the right things. It's about doing the right things for the right reasons. And he was, he was just, I think, a great example of that where, you know, he goes out and, you know, leaves the film crew behind and, and they find out, you know, after the fact he's doing this and that, it's just, it, I think he's a, he's a tremendous example of kind of living your purpose and, and living your passion. And then you find ways of making it work. Yeah. He's basically the polar opposite of the guy that films himself, giving the homeless guy five bucks. Exactly. <laughs> and I've only done that a handful of times, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> yeah, but no, I think, I think uh, it, he was just, he's a, he's a tremendous living example of that. Absolutely. All right. Well, speaking of amazing people, the next question, is there a person you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? I tell you, I tell you a good one. And this is, this is not a name, unfortunately, that a lot of people know, but, uh, but uh, Ryan Waters. And Ryan was the first American to complete the Explorers Grand Slam. And uh, he, he also, he and his partner at the time, Eric Larson, as far as I understand, completed the last uh, full trip of the North Pole. And this was a couple of years ago. And now because of the ice situation, I don't know if, if people are going to be able to complete it anymore. Uh, but Ryan is someone that has helped me on Project 7 for Soldiers. He and I have become uh, very close. Uh, you know, we've been on top of Everest together and been Antarctica and been, you know, everywhere in between together. And I tell you, I just I've learned so much from him is that he's what we talked about earlier about having that quiet intensity is if you get him riled, if you can get him riled up and I've managed to do it once or twice, it, it takes a lot, but he's just, just very knowledgeable, very, uh, just a consummate professional. And the guy's just accomplished so much throughout his career. He, he's the owner of, uh, of, uh, mountain professionals, but, uh, he's been such an important influence on me, not only from a, from a climbing and polar per- and trekking perspective, but he just, He's helped to teach me, you know, how to approach these things, these these endeavors in a different way. Kind of that that quiet, uh, long burn intensity that we talked about, uh, and just uh, just a, a wonderful human being on top of that. Beautiful. Well, I appreciate the uh, the, uh, the suggestion. Thank you. Um, all right. Well, then the very last question before we make sure people know where to find you and your project. What do you do to decompress? Man, I don't know if I've decompressed in the last in the last year. Um, I think I think. Look, man, it's the 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 project is, is it's so big. You know, just taking and, and you know training twenty plus hours a week. Literally, if I'm not training, then I'm running the organization. I mean, that's that's all I've done for the past couple of years. I mean, just it, it, it's my life. It, it's it's who I am. It's what I do. So with that, I just, I don't have a lot of time, you know, to decompress. So really, I, I think the, the most that I can find is, is when I'm out alone in the mountains. Like we talked about earlier, is not having music going or a podcast or not having my cell phone on me. 
and just really fighting to find that quiet space. And that might be 10,000 feet up a mountain when my heart rate's 150 you know, beats per minute. Uh, but is when I can finally feel myself, what I, what I talk about is, is we, we can break our own gravitational fields. We, kind of, we can break through that ceiling that's kind of trying to pull us back down. And normally, and I think you mentioned it earlier, is sometimes when you try to get quiet, you actually start getting more and more noisy. And there's, it's like something inside of you that, that's scared of you getting quiet. It's scared of, of, of finding that peace. And it, try to, it tries to hold you down and bring you in. And, and I feel that even in the mountains. As, I, as I'm starting to disconnect, my brain gets more and more active. The voices get louder. All the things get louder. But when I can finally break through that and to kind of reach that flow state you know, that we discussed just a little bit earlier, is that's really the, 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 I, I find the best time for me. And given my amount of training, volume of training is normally that can last, you know, two to four hours. And that's something that, that, uh, you know, I look forward to every time I get out. Brilliant. Well, for people listening, um, where can they find Dawson's Peak? How can they maybe apply to be one of the, the athletes that takes part? And then how can they donate as well? Yeah, no, certainly. So our website is just dawsonspeak.org. Uh, Instagram is at Dawson's Peak. So I think that's the easiest way to kind of uh, learn more about the program or about the organization. And, uh, you know, look, it's, you know, we're still evaluating the next project that we have coming up is we're in discussions currently with a couple people with a couple ideas in mind. But if someone, you know, has an idea and they, they'd like to reach out and, and, and present that to us, we would, we would love to, to speak with them about it because, you know, we want to find different people that, uh, you know, from different areas, you know, that, that look different, that talk different, that have different experiences and that want to do different things in their lives uh, to, so that we can relate to as many people as possible. With regards to people getting, you know, actively participating is that, uh, you know, 100% of the net proceeds that we raise are being donated to our, to our partners on this project, which is the Gary Sneeze Foundation and Hope for the Warriors. So I'm not making a dime on this. My organization's not making a dime on this. I mean, I've, I've put a lot of, of, let's just call it personal resources into this project. So I'm, I'm on the far end, I'm on the other end of the spectrum, you know, when it comes to that, but uh, you know, any way that, that people can contribute to that, you know, we, we would certainly appreciate it. And like I said, it's a hundred percent of the net proceeds are getting donated out of this. Um, and, and all that, you know, you can find on the website. Beautiful. I know the Gary, Gary Sinise foundation does a lot of work with first responders as well. So yeah, and that will yeah. resonate deeply with people listening. Well, Dawson, I just want to say thank you. I mean, I, I never know where these conversations are going. There's always, you know, a person they're known for a thing, but, you know, the, the open-ended alleyway that is what this conversation will look like is always intriguing. And once again, it's been incredible to go all over the place with your own journey and, and you know, the kind of altruistic turn that you took, you know, in your 30s is, is absolutely incredible. So um, I just want to say thank you so much for being so generous with your time today. Now, listen, I, I appreciate it. It's, I mean, how we've been talking for, I think, almost two hours or what is it? Yeah, yeah almost two hours. Pretty man. much. Yep. Yeah. And it just honestly, it's flown by and I'm sitting here thinking, I'm like, don't hang up because we just scratched the surface <laughs> on so many things. And, and I tell you, man, listen, as I've had a chance to do a lot of these and I'm not I'm not saying this just to just to make you feel good is I just I really appreciate the the thought that you put into, into so many of the questions. They were just very interesting questions that either I haven't heard before or just that they were bent in a way that I haven't, you know, that I haven't heard before. And so I think with that, it just shows, you know, kind of the, uh, 
you know, the, the mindset that you're bringing into this and kind of how you're approaching it, which I think is tremendous. You know, I've had a chance to listen to a couple of the podcasts and, you know, now having a chance to meet you firsthand, I, I can't wait to find some time and to go back and, and listen to a lot more, but I, I really enjoyed it and, I, and thank you for your time. Thank you.